Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So I preached the last two weeks, one Lord and then one faith. And today I'd like to finish Ephesians 4 and 5 by ministering on this theme, one baptism. God bless you. Please be seated. Thank you for standing. Thank you for worshiping. Thank you for engaging. One baptism. This past Wednesday night, I spoke on the polarizing power of the gospel. That truth is so powerful that you cannot remain neutral about truth. You either embrace it or reject it. You cannot serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other, hold to one, despise the other. So God calls us to a commitment. He polarizes us either to accept and embrace truth or reject it. It is the very nature of truth itself. Jesus said that I've not come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. Now he is the prince of peace, but the sword is a sword that divides over the acceptance or rejection of truth. You cannot hold the truth in unrighteousness. And the Bible said, if you do not love the truth, that you will believe a lie, that God sends strong delusion to those who do not have a love of the truth. So it's so important that we know the truth that is revealed in the Word of God, the Bible, and that we embrace it with all of our hearts and that we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I've been praying that I would be guided and guarded by God, but also under his governance. That makes real good alliteration. Guided and guarded and governed by God. That's been in my personal prayers for a while now. In our church, we talk about the mission of the church that always answers to the message of the church. At the core of what is being taught from the Word of God, it makes it essential by nature. It's not optional. It's not take it or leave it. And this message that we preach is a non-negotiable, essential message. It's universal, meaning that anyone, anywhere, any culture can be saved by the gospel. The gospel is also exclusive, meaning that no one can be saved without it. Jesus declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. He is not a way. He is the way. Later in this month, we're going to hold our annual missions conference, and we'll be focused on the mission of the church as we move through the month of October. But what makes our unwavering commitment to our mission so important is that we preach a message that will determine the eternal destinies of every person. The Bible said if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost. When the Apostle Paul is writing uh, this passage in Ephesians, he's dealing with the blending together of a multicultural church. We're blessed with a multi-generational, multicultural church that is reaching for the next generation. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, in the early years 
of what we call the church age or dispensation, the church was made up of mostly Jewish believers. Some of them would have been considered Hellenistic or Grecian background, some Hebraic that were more conservative, but they were mostly Jewish people. And then in Acts chapter 8, Samaritans came into the church that would be considered half Jew, half Gentile. In Acts chapter 10, Gentiles came into the church. The man Cornelius, who was an Italian a captain over a hundred men, he was saved. Now, bringing all these Jews into the culture with all these Gentiles that were being saved, the Gentiles, most of them, had a pagan background. They were not raised on the Old Testament Bible. They didn't have a history or a heritage. They didn't have a foundation. And so it was not easy bringing these two cultures and then many cultures together when the confluence of the church. So they struggled with this. They dealt with this. In Acts chapter 15, they had a council to determine what would be required of these new Gentile believers to not offend the Jewish believers, but not overtax those new Gentile believers. So Paul understands this. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We've got all of these cultures coming into the church, and we want to have the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he reminds them there is one body, one church. We don't have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. We have one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. In Galatians, he wrote to them about this multicultural church. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond or slave or free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the church destroyed the social classes and brought everybody to the foot of the cross, if I could say it like that, to serve Jesus Christ. This is what is in the spirit of God, the mind of Paul, as he writes. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, he said, for through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father, Jews and Gentiles. In Ephesians 3, he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. Now, if you were a Jewish person and you had prejudice against the Gentiles, this would have really been an issue to struggle through that these Gentile believers who didn't have 4,000 years of history, that they're fellow heirs. They get the same inheritance of eternal life and of being in the kingdom of God, but Paul is bringing them together. He told them in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, in the church where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, he's kind of repetitive there, barbarian, scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. 
And what I love about this verse, I love the word Scythian because it referred to some of the lowest class people in their culture, unsophisticated, uncultured, perhaps uneducated. They would be barbarian. Sometimes the word barbarian in the King James doesn't mean barbarian like we think of it, but Scythian certainly does. So you can imagine a person who has hundreds or thousands of years of religious heritage, and he now is going to church with an uneducated, uncultured, irreligious person that has just been brought into the body of Christ. And Paul says, Christ is all and he is in all. The same spirit that is in you that were raised in the truth is the same spirit that is in a brand new believer that just got saved today. Amen. I'm glad that we're in one church, one body, that there is one God who is above all and through all and in you all. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. But as it was then, so it is now culturally across the face of the world that it's not automatic. You have to work at it. You have to talk about it, teach about it. And you have to overcome the obstacles that you may face from your background. You might bring to the church some prejudice or bias and how you see other people that God is saving. You need to deal with your preconceived notions about people of other backgrounds. The early church dealt with this and the 2023 church also deals with this. But we want to make sure that we continue to be a church that reflects what we will see when we get to heaven. Amen. The Bible said in Revelation 5 and 9 that there were a number of people in heaven and that God had redeemed them out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So when we get to heaven, there's going to be people from all over the face of the earth, of every language, of every color, of every tribe, kindred, cultural background, because it is one Lord, one faith, one baptism that baptizes us into one body, the church, that is going to take us to one heaven together. Amen. Just so you can see it again, Ephesians 4 and 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So the past two weeks, I've dealt with one Lord and one faith. So let's talk about one baptism. Paul is making the point, since we're all baptized into one body, we're all baptized the same way. We don't have a Jewish baptism and a Gentile baptism. We don't say, oh, we've got a scythian to baptize. We'll take him down to the river. Don't use the baptistry. He might get it dirty. Amen? All of this brings us into union with Jesus Christ in one faith, one baptism. Now, when we talk about baptism, we typically think of baptism as water baptism. And in the Bible, it was being immersed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and it was for the remission of sins. It wasn't joining a church. It was not an outward sign of an inward grace. But it was for the remission of sins. But Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 12 and 12 about this baptism being spiritual as well. For as the body is one, the body of Christ, and hath many members, pardon me, he's now using an example, the human body is one, has many members, 
And all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's not my purpose today. But 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the body of Christ, spiritual gifts, and now there's many members, many gifts, but one body. But now we're focusing on verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. So Paul now is talking here about spirit baptism, not water baptism. Whether we're Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Now, baptism in the New Testament refers to water and or spirit, depending on the context. I want to go to Hebrews chapter 6, because it's a really important passage of Scripture about foundational doctrines or teachings of the church. Uh, in chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews says that some of you, he says, have been in the truth a long, long time, and you should be old enough to be teaching other people. You should be able to eat strong meat uh, because it belongs to people who have their, their senses exercised to discern good from evil. But he said, some of you have been in the church a long time, but you're still like a baby, and you still need milk. You still need foundational truth. And then now in chapter 6, he's going to tell them to grow past the foundation, but not to abandon it. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Hebrews 6 and 1. Therefore, leaving or growing up past the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go unto, unto perfection, not laying again the foundation. So here's the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Of the doctrine of baptisms. I wanted you to see that here it is plural because it refers to water and spirit baptism and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. These foundational doctrines in Hebrews 6 include repentance, turning away from sin, faith toward God, baptisms, water and spirit, Laying on of hands, which has many applications, and I've taught here multiple times through the years, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are not peripheral doctrines. These are foundational doctrines that people who are getting established in the church need to know and not ever to abandon. They are not obscure, and they are not peripheral, as I said. That's why here... At our church, we teach these foundational doctrines over and over because we always want to have a strong foundation of faith. And we always have new people and young people that need to be strong in the faith. And we try to go on under perfection, teaching other things that will mature people in Jesus Christ. Amen. There is one Lord. There is one faith. And there is one baptism. God has brought us into an unshakable kingdom. And we want to be unshakable in our faith toward God. So let's address water baptism. Now we believe that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of works lest any man should boast. We do not earn salvation by works of righteousness that we have done. 
all of our righteous works are but filthy rags if we're not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But some people think this faith alone excludes turning from sins and repentance, being baptized in Jesus' name, or receiving the Holy Spirit. But I want to make it clear today that you never can earn salvation. Salvation is the gift of God. And when you turn from your sins in repentance, that is not a work of righteousness. It is turning your life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not a work to earn salvation. It is burial with Christ. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is not a work to earn salvation. It is a gift of eternal life that consummates this new birth experience. So now, John chapter 3. There's a ruler of the Jews. He's on the Sanhedrin. He's probably wealthy, but he's very powerful. But he hears about Jesus, and he comes to Jesus by night. He doesn't want to be discovered. He's a secret disciple. And he, he says to Jesus, we know that you are a rabbi come from God. Nobody can do the miracles you're doing except God is with him. So in short, Nicodemus is saying, we know who we are. We're Jews, Abraham's children. You know, I'm a ruler of the Jews. We've got the pedigree, the black background, the bloodline. We know that we're saved by our first birth being Jewish people, but we're trying to figure out who you are, Jesus. We know you're a rabbi, a teacher come from God, and it looks like Jesus answers him a totally different response than his question. Jesus says, verily I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this really throws Nicodemus because he doesn't know what's wrong with his first birth. He thinks he's going to be saved because he's the son of Abraham. And so Nicodemus, scratching his head, he says to Jesus, now, you know, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And now Jesus explains to him this new birth experience of water and spirit. John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this new birth, not your natural birth, but this new birth has two components, water and Spirit. And then Jesus tells him in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Marvel not that I say to thee, you must be born again. In other words, Nicodemus Congratulations on being born a son of Abraham, but that will not get you into the kingdom of God. If you get into the kingdom of God, it's not because you were raised in a church, even if it was a Pentecostal church like me, it's going to be because you are born again of water and of spirit. And by the way, I thank God that when I was eight years old, I was born of water and of spirit. Amen. These two elements of birth, it's it's like natural birth, but it's spiritual. When a baby is born by natural birth, there's the breaking of the water. There's that baby breathing for the first time. There is water, and you could say spirit. When God created Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. In the New Testament, the word spirit is pneuma. It is the breath of God. You could say it like that. Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive you the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
So Jesus is teaching these two elements of the new birth, of baptism, of water, and of spirit, and they are both essential. And then Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it wants to. Listeth is in the King James. It blows wherever it wants to. You can hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's coming from and where it's going. But so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to say file that away, and Nicodemus had to file that away because the Spirit had not yet been given. Water baptism. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament of the Bible, baptism was always by immersion in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. As I said earlier, it's not just a symbolic act, and it is not a work of righteousness. But the Bible does teach that water baptism is essential to salvation. I'm going to quickly go through several verses. The sermon will be available online. If you want to go back and take your time and pause and read more generally, but I'm covering more territory in less time today. I've addressed all these themes in single sermons in times past. Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned or condemned. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter is comparing water baptism to Noah's ark. God used Noah's ark to save those eight souls from perishing in the flood. And then in verse 21, the apostle Peter says, the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. And he explains that it is what God does. In Acts chapter 2, the day that the church was born, the apostle Peter, who had been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven by Jesus Christ, preached. And when he did, there was conviction or a sense of guilt and the people gathered they there said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 is the concise message of salvation. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, I just want to show you that baptism is by immersion. In Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, not for his sins, but to fulfill all righteousness, the Bible said he went up straightway out of the water. When John the Baptist was baptizing, John 3.23, I'm just showing you a phrase, he baptized in Enon near Salem because there was much water there. And Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, they're riding along. Philip is giving him a Bible study with a scroll of Scripture that this Ethiopian man had. And the Ethiopian says, see, here is water. What doth hinder us to be baptized? And the Bible says in verse 38, they both went down into the water and Philip baptized him and they came up out of the water. In Romans Chapter 6, verse 3. No, you're not. And so many of us says we're baptized into Jesus Christ 
were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. I want to pause here to say that the Bible is very clear that water baptism is burial with Jesus Christ. It does not say we are buried with them. It says we are buried with him. So Christ died for our sins and was buried, rose on the third day. When I am baptized, I am baptized or buried with Christ. Verse 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Amen. Now what did they say when they baptized people? I've already mentioned this, but Luke 24, 47, Jesus says, and that repentance or remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Acts 2, 38, I just want to point out the phrase again, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, in answer to how a miracle was worked in Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter explained that in the name of Jesus Christ, that they had crucified, that God raised from the dead, this man was healed. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. All the way over in Acts chapter 19, about 25 years into the history of the early church, the apostle Paul finds some disciples of John the baptism, John the Baptist. He asked them, had they received the Holy Ghost since they believed they did not know it was available. He asked them how they were baptized. They said John's baptism. Acts 19.5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Once again, know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Amen. Every recorded instance of people being baptized in the New Testament was in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts 2, 41, there were added unto them 3,000 souls. Acts 8 and 12, I know I'm going very fast. I'll slow down now. They believed the preaching of Philip concerning the things of God. They were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They believed the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized. Acts 8 and 16 tells us that they had not yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They believed there were miracles. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then later, they received the gift of the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 10, verse 48, after Cornelius, that first Gentile, and his family received the gift of the Holy Spirit, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. In Acts chapter 19, verse 5, once again, these disciples of John were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are nine separate baptismal services recorded in the book of Acts. Wherever people believed on the Lord, they were baptized, and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
for the remission of sins. There is no instance of a believer saying no to being baptized in the name of the Lord. So the Bible says very clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, there is one Lord and one faith, and there is one baptism. Baptism of water and spirit. So let's talk about this baptism of spirit for just a few minutes. It's not just something that happened today or in the book of Acts, but in the Old Testament, the prophets saw this coming. Isaiah spoke about stammering lips in another tongue that would be the rest that would cause the weary to rest. The apostle Paul identified that passage as referring to speaking in other tongues. In Jeremiah, the Lord said, I will write my law in their inward parts. I will put my law in their hearts. They will be my people. I will be their God. In the book of Joel, that Old Testament prophet, in the last day saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. In the New Testament, John the Baptist, he came preaching, baptizing with water. He said, but there's one coming after me. He's mightier than I. I'm baptizing you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Jesus came teaching a new birth of water and spirit. He told Nicodemus that it's like the wind that blows. In John chapter 7, Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit like water. He said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Amen. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being, out of his belly, shall flow rivers of living water. But this big key of the Spirit, I'm glad that when God gives you the Holy Spirit, it is not like a little trickling stream, but it is powerful. It is like rivers of living water that are springing up into everlasting life. Jesus told the woman at the well that he would give her living water, that she would never thirst again when it comes to the spiritual. John 20 Jesus breathed on the disciples, as I mentioned earlier, and said, receive you the Holy Ghost. In Luke 24, Jesus said, I'm sending you back to Jerusalem. Wait there for the promise of the Father. And just before Jesus ascended up into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. The gift of the Holy Ghost was first received in Acts chapter 2, then Acts chapter 8 by Samaritans, in Acts chapter 10 by Gentiles, in Acts chapter 19 by disciples of John the Baptist. There is just one baptism, one Lord, one faith, one baptism that is both water and is both spirit. Amen. And I want to go back to what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter John when he said, There, the wind, Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You may look on some people that are religious people that really don't love God with all of their heart and they're not seeking after Him. 
You might look at somebody that is irreligious like a Scythian and say that God could never save them. But Jesus said, Nicodemus, let me tell you something. This wind does not just blow on Jewish people that have a long heritage and faith. This wind does not just blow on people that have some background in the church. But this wind blows wherever it wants to. And it doesn't matter who you are. If you have a desire for God, if you have a spiritual thirst, the Holy Spirit is for you today. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet right now and why don't you say thank you, Lord, that the wind blows where it wishes. Hallelujah. Why don't we thank the Lord right now that God has allowed the wind of his spirit to blow on us. I want to say something to every believer in the house that we always want to make sure that what God does for us is not just a gentle breeze of the Spirit, but it is like what took place in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit was first received. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. I don't know what kind of experience you have with God, but the one the Lord promised was like rivers of living water, was like wind, amen, was like a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. It was like a, a corporate sound of a wind. And then there were cloven tongues, divided tongues, a fire, and it sat upon each of them. It was not just a corporate experience. You can't just come hide in the crowd and say, oh, I was at church today, and wow, that wind was really blowing. I want to know what's over your heart and over your life. These tongues of fire sat upon each of them. Amen. And after that happened, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or the ability to speak. Amen. It wasn't gibberish. No one taught them to speak in tongues. They were speaking in at least 15 different languages. If you read Acts chapter 2, that could be understood by people from those countries. It was a legitimate, bona fide language that God spoke through them. It was not just to spread the gospel because Peter preached to all those people in one language that they all understood, probably Aramaic, a rushing, mighty wind. I pray that God would let the wind of the Holy Spirit blow across my life, over my family, over our local church, over the city of Atlanta. Our world desperately needs a spiritual revival. We need the baptism of water and of the Spirit. I'm glad to know there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism, and with the power of that Spirit, we need to go take this message to our world that is dying without God. Let's lift our hands to the Lord right now. Let's thank Him for what we know and what we have and what we can share with other people. Hallelujah.
We're going to come to the front of the church today. We won't all fit here, but I'm inviting you to make a move toward God. If you're more comfortable praying with where you are and you're new, we totally understand that. Talked about water baptism and spiritual baptism. But before you get there, remember those foundational doctrines? It is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So before you're water baptized or spirit baptized, you need to turn away from your sins in repentance. Repentance is confessing and forsaking your sins. It's realizing that all of sin comes short of the glory of God and that we're contrite before God, that we confess our sins and we forsake our sins. And as we do, we open up our hearts. We turn our faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible said whoever covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes their sins will have mercy. We need the mercy of God over our lives. Would you come and let's pray right now. Let's come asking God to forgive us of our sins. Right where you're all, you are. Right where you are. Would you ask Jesus Christ to cleanse your heart, to forgive you of your sins? We're believing that the Lord would let us take this one Lord, one faith, one baptism message to push back the darkness of our world for people that are dying in their sins can be introduced to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you would open the blinded eyes of people who are hungry for you. today.